Well, let's go to Mark chapter 9. And I must tell you that you version is down. Uh, not our fault. We put our stuff in, but it's not functioning this morning. So we're all going to have to pretend we're back in the year 2007. There's something called a Bible that you hold in your hand, paper and leather and notes. And so on the review, you can take notes and we'll, we'll work through it together. We're, we, we've been traveling through the book of Mark for a few years. We go in and we go out. We're back in right now. And today I want to talk to you about misunderstanding Jesus, misunderstanding Jesus. And this has happened a lot in history. And in fact, you could even say it's been the story of history the last 2,000 years. Everybody wants to make Jesus into their own image. Everybody wants to make Jesus whatever is compatible to their desires or their lifestyle. And the scripture we're going to look at today is particularly alarming because the men who were with Jesus the most and heard him the most and saw him most frequently were the same men who completely misunderstood him. And this catches my attention this morning because it reminds us that we have a capacity to be around Jesus, be around church and be around Christianity and be near God type stuff, but misunderstand the heart of who God is and who Jesus is. I know I've done that and, and I have the capacity to do that again. But today's message is gonna help us recenter, recenter, I believe, on what the heart of Jesus is. And as we understand uh, some common misunderstandings, it, it's going to help us center on the truth of who Jesus really is. Now, I think something that really helps us understand the work of God in our lives is this. Uh, that we're, we're part of a story. God has this story, and the story is this. He's redeeming the world. He's bringing the world back under his control and back under his rule and back under his reign. And God is writing the story. He's writing the script that you and I are part of. This, this metaphor has been so helpful to me to understand faith and really understand the scripture and understand the full scope of who God is. We're right in the middle of a big story and we're the characters in it. And so that's gonna help, help us uh, debunk some of the myths. Now, the book of Mark is a story and, and we're reading through the book of Mark and we'll shift next Sunday to a different series and then we'll come back into Mark 10 probably sometime next year. But, but as we're reading the story, the part of the passage we get through today, we get some kind of behind the scenes, um, some behind the scenes descriptions. It's almost like the DVD section. If you remember this, when we used to watch DVDs, do some of us still watch DVDs? Um, there is a part, this is one of the most, um, the, the best parts of a DVD, the director's cut. You can rewatch the movie and as you're rewatching the movie you've already seen, the director talks over the dialogue and talks over the action and tells what was going on behind the scene. Has anyone ever done that in here? Yeah, okay, all right. Can I have a witness? Glory to be. All right, all right. Come on, church, come on. All right, so we've done that. 
we've done that. So this is kind of what's happening in this passage. So let's go to uh, Mark chapter nine, starting with verse uh, 30. It says, then they had left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, Here, here's a key part. The son of man, which is another clear name for the Messiah, is being betrayed into the hands of men. I want you to remember this, that Jesus knew the cross was going to happen. Didn't catch Jesus by surprise. He was warning his disciples. He was telling his disciples beforehand that this, this is going to happen. The son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will Rise three days later. Isn't that awesome to know that our God not only knew his death, but he knew his resurrection. He knew how the story was going to end. He knew what was happening. But here's kind of our key verse today. But they did not understand this statement. They did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. I want you just to let that sink in for a second. I want you to under, know this. Is sometimes when we're around Jesus and around his teaching and around his ways, and even when we hear, uh, hear him tell us what the future is going to be, the natural mind just doesn't understand it. Without the spirit, without the spirit making revelation known, we just don't get it. And this was certainly the case in this narrative. They did not understand the statement and, and they were afraid to ask. Then they came to Capernaum. And then he was in, he, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? I chuckled when I read this because I've been, I've been in that situation around my kids where I come in and there's like a look of anger towards each other. I'm like, what's going on in here? Nothing. Nothing's happening. They're hiding us, but it was obvious by their body language. It was obvious by their demeanor. It was obvious that Jesus caught them in an argument that they didn't want... Jesus to know about, the leader here. He says, what were you arguing about on the way going on? It says, but they, they were silent because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Instinctively, they knew that was wrong. Sitting down, again, that's another part of the scripture I like that Jesus taught sitting. I'm gonna do that someday. I'm just gonna get my big throne chair, right? And sit here, my lazy boy, pop up, teach you guys, but I'm not Jesus, so... I need my runway. So sitting down, verse 35, he, he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Some of the greatest words of the Bible right there. Then he took a child and had him stand among them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. We're gonna look at some different aspects of this scripture, break down some misunderstanding. But let me talk to you about uh, the story that we're in. The story that we're in. The fact that we're in the middle of a story lets us know that Jesus has a plan. And essentially every story, every story has the same process and the same ending. Every story does that. Now, who in here saw Catching Fire this weekend? Come on, admit it. Admit it, you saw Catching Fire, okay? Catching Fire. Rachel, it was an unbelievable ending, wasn't it? 
I mean, she is. Catching Fire is a real popular movie. Out. Unbelievable ending. You, you wouldn't believe, you would not expect the way this movie ended. Is that true? Yeah? Yeah, uh, Kennedy, you agree that's true? It had an unbelievable ending, okay? I know that's true. You know why? I didn't see the movie, but I just know the nature of a story. That particular movie had an unbelievable ending because every story is the same. Every story is the same. We, we, we think that a great story has twists, a great story has turns, but essentially every story is essentially the same. Now, I want to give you my first point so you won't get nervous and think that I'm going to preach along today. Here, here's the first thing that we misunderstand is we misunderstand Jesus' plan, the plan of Jesus. We misunderstand it. We don't realize we're in the middle of a story. Now, in a story, a story has the same components. Every story has the same components. And one of those components is every story needs a hero. So if, uh, if God's writing a story and, and we're in the script, we need a hero in here. I'm looking around the room. I'm seeing a lot of candidates for hero, but I want to ask Alex Lute to join me because Alex, I want you to come up here. You're going to be our hero today. I want to demonstrate. Now, Alex is a hero. He's a school teacher. He works with special ed students, okay, at Jack Anderson Elementary. And he also leads a mission trip every year to Costa Rica, all right? I mean, a very heroic person. This is, this is, he not look like a hero to you right now. Do you want me to sing Mariah Carey to you? No. Yeah, right. So, so in every story, there's a hero. So, you know, think here, Luke Skywalker, right? All right. Think, uh, who's the hero of, of, uh, of that movie, Cassinus, is that her name? Katniss. Katniss, yeah. Does Alex remind you of Katniss up here, right? Not quite. You don't quite look like him. Uh, think any movie with Tom Hanks in it. Have you ever noticed that? Tom Hanks is likable. Here's the deal about your hero. When they start a story, the hero has to be likable. You have to be a guy like Alex. You like Alex. The hero has to be like Tom Hanks. You know, any movie with Tom Hanks in, he's going to be a likable guy. So in order every story to be the same, you have a hero, but you also have to have a nemesis. Pastor Daniel, would you come up here? Uh, look, this guy, he's joined us up here, and he's a shifty-looking guy. I know some of you, when you heard him give announcements today, thought, man, suspicious, one of these pastor guys. I mean, he just, he just kind of has that look. So I want you to think Darth Vader. Yeah, I want you to think, uh, which one is it, President what? What is it, Kennedy, President Cross, or President Snow? President Snow, thank him. Think of any movie starring Gary Busey, because Gary Busey's always the nemesis. And Busey kind of took on that persona as life unfolded. So here's the deal. The story makes you want to like the hero. And I want you to know you're that person. You're the likable hero. But then a nemesis comes. And here's where the conflict happens. The nemesis tries to do something really bad to the hero, which is, okay, wow, that's menacing right there. Can you do that again? Boy, Sugar Ray Leonard, that just, just evokes images like that. And the story is, at the end, the hero overcomes the nemesis. And it's not always a person. It's not always Gary Busey or Darth Vader. It could be um, circumstances. It could be problems. And, and so we're watching the story unfold. And in the middle of the story, because we like the hero, 
We're wanting him to succeed, but all this adversity is on top of him. And so we are conflicted internally. But then the hero emerges and we're glad we spent our 15 bucks on a movie, right? Y'all with me? Okay, y'all can sit down. I just thought that was better to thank you. Can you thank our, our helpers here? So if you understand God's narrative that since sin entered the world, um, he's writing the script and us being made in the image of God are likable and heaven itself is rooting us on to succeed. But our adversary, he, our adversary is attacking us. Our adversary is like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. And, and the story isn't over yet. So this is what I want you to realize. Some of you are, are not understanding the work of Jesus in your life right now. Look back at the key verses in beginning of verse 30. Uh, he, he was teaching the disciples in verse 31. The son of man is gonna be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. Now that's not an exciting prognosis. It's not an exciting prognosis to think uh, this, this, this is moving towards execution. This is moving towards death. And, and then in, in verse 32, it says, they didn't understand this statement and they were afraid to ask. Uh, we understand this even deeper after Jesus died on the cross, between his death and his resurrection. We, we, we discover a story in Luke chapter 13. The story you may be familiar with is on the road to Emmaus. In Luke chapter 13, and starting with verse 31, uh, that's actually, you got the wrong, I'm sorry, it's not Luke 13. Let's go to Luke 24. Luke, and starting in Luke, Luke chapter 24, it says, now, now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself, this is in Luke 24, came near and began walking along with them. So this was before, this was as he's revealing his resurrected self. I might've misstated that earlier. So this was right after the resurrection. But they were prevented from recognizing him. And then he said to him, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happen there in these days? What things, he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Now look at, look at this phrase. This lets you know the psyche. This lets you know the mindset of the disciples. We were hoping that he was the one who was able to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Look at this, this phrase. We were hoping that he was the one. We were hoping that Jesus would bring a, a political renewal to our nation. We were hoping that Jesus would be the one that would raise us up out of military oppression and help us to be a great nation again and to overcome and overthrow the Roman Empire. We were the hoping he was the one to redeem Israel. Now this is where I want you to use this mindset and this is an analogy for your life. Sometimes that 
we don't recognize the plan of Jesus because the plan isn't turning out the way we expected it. And we could insert our own personal interpretation of this. We were hoping that he was the one and you insert the situation. We were hoping he was the one to save this marriage. We were hoping he was the one who could turn our children around. We were hoping he was the one who could heal this disease. And God does all of those things in his sovereign will and his sovereign plan. But often we are so personally focused on our own enjoyment and our own happiness that we forget we're part of a story. We're part of something bigger. We think God exists to make us enjoy the world while God causes us to exist to help him change the world. I'm gonna say that again. We think God exists for help, to help us enjoy the world, but God has created us to exist so that we can partner with him to change the world. I don't wanna make little of your circumstance. I don't wanna belittle your challenge. Some of you have challenges and you have faced things that I'll never understand. You have faced adversity with poise and courage and strength and your life is heroic. And I don't understand the physical challenges you've had. I don't understand the relational challenges you have had. I don't understand the oppression maybe you have faced or the trials you've gone through. But I do know this, is that you're in the middle of a story. You're in the middle of a script that God has made you fearfully and wonderfully. And that the adversity and the challenge and the trial, as hard as it is now, as difficult as it seems to sustain, as, as dark as the challenge is, you're going to pass through. God's writing the script. God's writing the story. And at the end, at the end, you have to trust he has a plan. He has a plan. This scripture brings me so much encouragement because God does have a plan. We see another place, and now we'll go back to Luke chapter 13. I'm going a little out of sequence from the notes, but Luke chapter 13, there was a time when Jesus was confronted and we can read, it says, at that time, some Pharisees came and told him, go, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. Now look at Jesus's response. And he said to them, go tell that fox. I love that phrase. Jesus was in control, not fearful, uh, not panicking. He said, go tell that fox, look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. That G that's our Jesus has a plan. And there's a couple of plans going on. Jesus said, I need three days to do what I want to do. <laughs> I'm going to drive out demons and perform healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. You just tell Herod to back off. You tell Herod that I have a plan. You tell Herod that I'm in control and I'm going to complete this. And I love that phrase, the third day. Does that sound familiar to you? Y'all remember what else happened on the third day? Resurrection power. God had a plan. God has a plan. He had a plan. He has a plan. And he... He will continue his plan in your life. So don't give up in the adversity. Don't give up in the trial. Don't let go when you have the greatest challenges you've ever faced because it's just the second day. The third day is not here yet. 
The third day's not here. There's a resurrection coming. A resurrection's coming. God's going to resurrect those things in your life and you're part of his story to redeem the world. And God is using your pain and he's using your challenge and he's using your trial to change the world. I want you to hear that today. God is using your challenge to change the world. So we believe that God has a plan Even though we misunderstand the plan in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our sickness, in the middle of our challenge, we misunderstand the plan. We wonder, God, what, what are you doing? Or where are you? Have you forgotten me? And we misunderstand his method. That's the second thing. And we misunderstand his method because after Jesus, after Jesus revealed this uh, and he revealed to them that he had a plan, uh, these guys didn't get it. Because immediately they started arguing. They started arguing. And we, we go back to that narrative of verse 33. It says, when they came to Capernaum, he was with them and he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? Verse 34. But they were silent because on the way they'd been arguing about who was the greatest. Doesn't that just seem immature? Just to, I mean, just reading that on the screen or reading that in your Bible? They're arguing about Who's the greatest? They, they didn't realize the method of Jesus. And so sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is where we get our faith ethics here. This is where the culture of Jesus is passed down to us. This is counterintuitive of everything we learn. We learn in academic world where it's all about competition. You know, get the 90 plus, get the 98. In the athletic world where it's about the scoreboard. In any other metric, we are programmed as people to be first. We are programmed to people as people to seek our own welfare primarily. And Jesus is counterculture. Says this: Here's the method I have for you. If you want to be first, be last. If you want to go to the top, go to the bottom. Serve, give, humble yourself. And what happens is when we humble ourselves, and it becomes less of our agenda, and less of our plan, and less of our preference. Like John the Baptist, we say, I must decrease so he may increase. That's how the kingdom is. Less of us means more of Jesus. Less of what we want means more of what he wants. Less of what we desire means his desires become the preeminent motivator of our hearts. It's a different method. When you understand he has a plan, then he has a different method for that plan coming to pass. Then he says, he must be the servant of all. And then Jesus did something. He did something that was very unusual for that day. Now for us, this seems very uh, natural because we live today for good or bad. There's a lot of good to this, but there's challenges too. We live in the most child-centered culture that's ever been on the face of the planet. I mean, that's just, there's positives and negatives to that. But we almost worship the child. (laughs) And So this was not the case in Greco-Roman culture. 
that dominated the day. It was not the case in Jewish culture. So we have three cultural forces coming that, that applauded the maturity of an adult. And children were not important at all. I mean, I remember enough the phrase, children are to be seen and not heard. Some of y'all remember that phrase? So, so, yeah, I remember that too, that idea of kids keep your mouth shut, we're eating steak and you're gonna go in the kitchen and eat hot dogs, right? That's, now it's like, what do the kids want? We, don't, we, we, we gotta get what the kids want. So magnify this many, many, many years back in culture and, and children were, you could argue, the least important in culture. Certainly on the list of the least important. In verse 36, this is what Jesus does. Then he took a child and he had them stand among them and taking them in his arms, he said, whoever welcomes little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Now there's a couple of applications here and I have to say this, despite my observations about cultural changing, cultural changes here at our church, we're in step with the good aspect of that. That's why Awana and children's ministry and youth ministry is the priority around here. We don't just give lip service to putting kids and teenagers first. We put kids and teenagers, we make them a priority with our staffing, with our budget, uh, with our time with our physical space. So I know a lot of you adults, we've given up our space so the teenagers can have more space in here, right? So we, we I, I certainly think this applies that way. Whoever welcomes a child, welcomes me in my name. So those of you involved in children's ministry and youth ministry, uh, you're serving Jesus, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're preparing and sharpening your crayons for Jesus and getting your snack together for Jesus and uh, staying on rock hard mattresses at youth camp for Jesus, That's, that applies that way. But a, a deeper meaning or, or a companion meaning, meaning I want us to see is for the marginalized in society. For those in society who are not desired and who are not welcomed and who don't fit into the traditional church structure. Those are the ones that Jesus, those are the ones that Jesus wants to reach and he wants us to reach them. Brendan Manning had said that heaven is for a five-year-old. <laughs> There'll be lots of five-year-olds in heaven, lots of children in heaven. A lot, a lot of people, a lot of people maybe that in our natural Determinations, we wouldn't think certain people are qualified for heaven because they don't have manners or they don't have social graces uh, or maybe they don't have some of the advantages we've had in education or in financial opportunity. We might find that Jesus has been preparing those people in such a way that we've never imagined. When Jesus was on this earth, uh, he got accused of spending too much time with people who partied. And we'll see here in Luke chapter five, um, Luke chapter five, I believe it is, that uh, th this particular scripture, verse 29, says, then Levi, who we know as Matthew, hosted a grand banquet for him, being Jesus, at his house. 
Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. In case you didn't know, in that century, tax collectors were, were considered the scum of the government. I can't even give you strong enough language to know how detested tax collectors were. But the Pharisees, verse 30, and their scribes, and can I just say real quick that I'm a recovering Pharisee? I've been a Pharisee before. The Pharisee and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus replied to them, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not, call, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. See, the last point that I wanted to make is Jesus, we misunderstand, misunderstand his plan. We misunderstand his, help me with the third one, his outcome. Thanks. We, we think that the gospel is only for us, but we forget that the gospel is for the tax collectors and the sinners. The gospel are for those who wouldn't fit into a traditional church setting for people we don't expect. That's part of the story that Jesus is unfolding. He's unfolding a story that says, I want my message. I want my message to reach every single person, not just those who inherit a knowledge of me uh, from a cultural realization or a family inheritance. Man, this, this message is for everyone. This message is for everyone. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm so grateful that I serve a God who loves all people, not just the pretty people, not just the wealthy people, not just the educated people, not just the politically correct people. Our God loves all types of people, including ignorant people like me. Because I have been foolish and I have been ignorant and I have been rebellious, and I have been a fake, and I have been a phony, and I have been a Pharisee. But God's grace did not give up on me. I was in the middle of a story, and in the middle of the script, I messed the script up. In the middle of the script, I did things that didn't please God. In the middle of the script, I made mistakes that would dishonor his name. In the middle of the script, my story wasn't going the way it should have been. But I have a God who didn't give up on me. I have a God who didn't quit writing my story. I have a God who did not shut the movie down in the middle of the movie. My God kept involved by his grace, kept changing the environment. So by grace, I am saved, not of my work so I can get up here and boast and brag, but by his work. I am God's craftsman craftsmanship. I am being molded and shaped by God himself. The power of God is a gift of his grace. And there's no reason for me to boast. No reason for you to boast. We are in the middle of this story and the outcome is changed lives. Guys, it's about changed lives. We're not here just to observe religion. We're not here just to appease our conscience. 
We're not here just to check something off the list on Sunday morning. We're here because we are a group of people whose lives have been changed by the gospel. And we're a city set on a hill, a light and darkness to say, if God did it for me, he can do it for you. If God did it for me, if I was qualified enough to receive his grace, then anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus can receive his grace. And the gospel is going. It's going to the unlikely places, to the unlikely people. And his love is reaching to places we've never imagined. And we get to be partners with that. Is that not good? So I don't want to serve a fake Jesus, a religious Jesus, a cultural Jesus, a misunderstood Jesus. I want to serve the Jesus who is unfolding the gospel story in my life and the life of my friends. Brendan Manning wrote something a few years ago that meant something to me. If you can put that last quote up. Because I don't have it memorized. It says, the hookers and swindlers enter before us because they know they cannot save themselves. They cannot make themselves presentable or lovable. They risked everything on Jesus. And knowing they didn't have it all together, were not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. Aren't those beautiful words? As we celebrate this season, we move to Thanksgiving this Thursday. And I, I, I love Thanksgiving. And I just, I just wanna challenge you. Listen, let's not make Thanksgiving become a shopping holiday. Maybe Good Friday, but not Thanksgiving. Shopping, football, all that stuff. Let's, let's lead from the heart. Let's thank from the heart. God's amazing grace. Of all the things we have, I mean, he's blessed us financially, and I praise his name for his financial blessing. He has blessed us physically. As I mentioned last Sunday, we're among some of the most healthiest people who've ever lived. Our life expectancy is much longer than people who have ever lived on this planet. He's blessed us with freedom of religion. We live in a great nation who allows us to choose how we worship and who to worship. And we worship the supreme God, the one and only Jesus, the exalted one. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be grateful for. Let's not be prideful. Let's not put pride in our possessions and pride in our personality and pride in our church and pride in our religion. But let's humbly receive this message of Jesus. Would you pray for? Would you pray with me today? I want, I want to give us a chance to respond before we leave. I want you to imagine Jesus holding a little child, a child that had been overlooked, a child who had not been invited, a child who was on the margins of society, and a child who was not welcomed. And he says, when you welcome this child, you welcome me. And there was an ugly moment for you, a moment when you made a terrible choice, a moment when you lived in such a way that you knew it was dishonorable and didn't please the Lord. And in your darkest moment, 
And in your biggest mistake and at your biggest regret, Jesus is holding you like a child. And he's saying, he's saying, if you welcome Aaron Allison in this state, and if you welcome Beth Allison in this state, if you welcome, if he would call your name out in their darkest place, in their deepest regret, their darkest sin, then you've welcomed me. Man, that's the grace of our Lord. That's the grace of our Lord. We're so thankful. You're so good, God. We want to respond to you with love today. An attitude of prayer. Can we just stand together? There's a deep sense of love for the Lord today. There's a deep sense of love for the Lord today. And the last few minutes we have together before I give a formal dismissal. I want us just to press into his love. I want us to take a moment just to experience his love. And we are welcome. We are welcome to the kingdom. We are welcome to the table. He's prepared a place for us. I thank God that our sins are not counted against us as they should. For his grace has forgiven us. Our God is, his mercy is new every morning. That means for every mistake, there's a new mercy. For every misstep, there's a new mercy. There's a new grace. There's a new opportunity. The Lord doesn't want you to stay in that place of regret for godly sorrow leads to repentance. You're sorrowful. You're regretful. You wish you had not said it. You wish you had not done it. You wish you could turn back the clock. And the Lord says that he wants to take that repentance. He wants to take that sorrow. And he says, now take a step. Take a step back to the place I have for you. Yes, you cannot remain in sorrow forever. For God doesn't want you to remain in sorrow forever. He wants you to take that sorrow and use it for a first step, for a new direction. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have it figured out. You just need to know the one who does have it figured out, Christ Jesus. And if you see him and you step towards Christ Jesus and say, God, I don't deserve you. I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your grace. But by your grace, I'm taking a step back to you today. And I'm going back to the place you've called me. Then you'll understand his love for you is greater than you could ever imagine. His love for you is greater than your mind could ever conceive. And his love for you is a beautiful thing. So what I want us to do, I just feel like every single one of us who's standing, I mean, or sitting or wherever you are, everyone who can hear my voice, if you're willing, I just think we all need to pray together. I think we all just need to focus on him. No doubt that our lifestyles are all in different places, but no doubt that there's choices we've all made and decisions we've all made that hasn't pleased the Lord, but we want to receive his love today. I'm gonna to ask that everybody in the room would repeat these words. Say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I have made mistakes. I have rebelled against you, but you have forgiven me. You have paid the price for my sin. So today, I take a step towards you. My sorrow is leading me to repentance. I turn back to you, God. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your grace. 
Now, let me pray for you. You don't need to repeat after me. God, you've heard the words of this congregation. I would say most of us, maybe all of us, said those words. And so, Lord, we receive your forgiveness. We receive your grace. Now we want to connect with your love. These last couple minutes we have together, Beth's going to lead us in, in some music. I want to ask our prayer partners to go back.